0: Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 16. And uh, we come this morning to, as, as Boots had already mentioned, the, the greatest, the close of the greatest theological treaties ever written. And before we dig into this together this morning, though, I need to make a much needed correction to something that I said last week. I mentioned last week a man that was popular for his spoken word ministry and then who later demonstrated himself to be a false prophet, and I incorrectly identified him as Clayton King when what I meant to say was Clayton Jennings, Clayton Jennings, right? So that was a big mistake on my part. I can't vouch for the ministry of Clayton King. I don't even know why that guy's name came into my mind, to be quite honest, Um Because I'm not really familiar with his ministry at all, but, uh, I should have said Clayton King, Clayton Jennings, I mean, and I don't want to make the mistake of incorrectly identifying somebody as a false teacher if they're not. So, if Clayton King happens to hear this week or last week's message or his legal team does, um, I just wanted to make sure that I publicly acknowledged my error and, uh, want to ask your forgiveness as well. So, Let's stand together and let's read together these words. Romans 16, verses 25 through 27, this great doxology to this great epistle. This is the word of the living God to us. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, And through the prophetic writings has been made known in all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, the glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our, you know, our hearts are just filled with gratitude. Lord God, with awe and wonder. As we contemplate just everything that we have learned and everything that has been confirmed and everything that has been established in our hearts, Lord God, as we've studied this epistle to the Romans. Now we think about how these words have enabled us by the work of your spirit to understand you more, to comprehend your character even better than we did Lord, to know Christ in truth, to uh, rejoice at the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, to bring us to faith and to sanctify us and to hold us fast in Christ. I just praise you and I thank you for this time. And so now, as we come to these closing words that you inspired Paul to write, Father, I pray that they would have their um, that they would have their fitting work in our hearts. God I thank you so much. Thank you for just your great grace to us. Thank you for your saving work in our lives. Thank you that you didn't leave us. Lord God in our wretchedness and in our rebellion against you bound for hell. Thank you that you sent your son to do for us what we could never do. Thank you that you sent your son Lord God to take to himself human flesh and live a life of utter perfection before your face. And then to give himself up as the only perfect sacrifice for our sins. The one who paid in full the debt that our sins, our sins deserve. The, 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 the wrath that our sins are owed. And, and thank you that we are given righteousness of Christ. And made your people. Lord, when we think about the book of Romans and the truth of it. Our hearts ought to be gripped with great gratitude, Lord, all the time all the time, not just on Sundays, but every single moment of the day. How grateful we are for the God that you are and for the way that you have redeemed a people like us. And I pray you just empower me, Lord God, by your spirit. I pray you help me to be able to preach this text faithfully this morning. And I pray that you'd make our hearts ready to receive it together. We love you. We give you all praise and glory in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, I asked this question just a moment ago, but how is it that you bring to a close the greatest treaties on the gospel ever written? Like, how do you do that? I know Paul's inspired by the Holy Spirit here. I understand that it's God speaking through Paul, but, but, but we've got to remember that it's not that that, that Paul was just kind of like an automaton and he's sitting there just kind of penning whatever God tells him to, to, to write down. This is, this is an expression as well of of the very personality of the apostle himself. And so here we have him sitting down to finish, to, to bring to a close this great letter that he's written. And you know how difficult that can be sometimes. Maybe you've written a letter to somebody and you're not really sure how to close it out and you struggle and you strain for what you should say. I know there are some people that are the kind of people that when they come to visit you have a very hard time leaving. You know what I mean? Like, they're the kind of people that start leaving 40 minutes in advance of when they actually are out of your house. You know, my mother-in-law is the classic example of that, right? When my father-in-law was alive, God bless him, I can remember, you know, when when they would be down to visit and, and they would be getting ready to leave and Pop-Pop would just go sit in the vehicle because he knew it was going to be forever before Mom mom got out the door. How do you finish this letter? How do you finish, especially... A letter that Martin Luther says, and I love this because I agree with him. Martin Luther says he's the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, which indeed deserves that a Christian should not only know it word for word by a heart, feel with it daily as with the daily bread of the soul, for it can never be read or considered too much or too well. And the more it's handled, the more delightful it becomes and the better it tastes. Amen. That's so true. How do you end this greatest theological piece of, a piece of theological writing in history? A letter, think about it, that takes these lofty themes and makes a child able to get, grasp them. And yet is so glorious that the most mature in Christ can find food for contemplation and meditation for a lifetime. Well, there's really only one way. And it's in the exact way that Paul does it here. It's in a with the doxology that is packed with doctrine it's with a doxology that that is packed with doctrine a song of exaltation and praise to god almighty a confession of worship to the author of the gospel of the lord jesus christ and that's exactly what we have before us this morning but i want us to understand the structure right before we get into this I want us to understand the structure of this doxology. Paul begins here. He begins his doxology by offering praise to God and magnifying his glory that he is able to strengthen Christians, right? Then we'll talk more in a moment about what that means. And then he describes how God does it. He does it through the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... Beloved, the main structure of of this doxology goes like this. Paul is saying, "Now to him who is able to strengthen us, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ." Amen. And then, in a series of of, of phrases, okay, in a series of phrases within the main structure, Paul describes the means by which God strengthens His people. And the way in which God strengthens his people is the gospel, with no addition of anything else necessary. He does it by the gospel, by the good news that Paul proclaims, the message that centers on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a great text. It's a tremendous text, and it is a, a fitting end to this most excellent letter. So let's look at it. Look what he says. Paul begins this doxology, but emphasizing that God is able to strengthen his people. Look what he says in the first part of verse 25. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you. To him who is able to strengthen you. Now, I want you to ask yourself a question, right? You're going to glorify somebody. You're going to magnify somebody. You're going to exalt somebody. Where are you going to begin? Where do you start with that, right? Usually, you start with something specific you know, to that person uniquely without regard to anybody else, right? Like, if I'm gonna magnify, you know, and, 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 and praise my wife, it's usually not gonna have to do with her relationship to somebody else. It's gonna have to do with her intrinsically, right? So why is it that Paul starts here in this doxology? Why is it that he starts this doxology by giving praise to God for His ability to strengthen His people. Well, beloved, it makes perfect sense, really, if you go back to Paul's warning in verses 17 through 20. Look at it again. There he said, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Here's the deal, right? Paul knows that the Roman Christians are going to be facing some serious challenges in the days to come, right? He knows that they are going to face threats from false teachers and from false brethren, which are instruments of Satan seeking to divide them and destroy their faith. But Paul had made them a promise, hadn't he? He'd made them a promise that they would endure and that Satan would not be ultimately successful, that they would be able to withstand such attacks. And here's why. Because God would soon crush Satan under their feet. And second, because the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, would be with them to the end. Right? Right? And so Paul begins this exaltation of God by extolling him as the one who is able to strengthen you, who's able to, to 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 anchor you. I want to make sure we understand what's being said here because the English word that's chosen here as the translation of the Greek word really has a difficult time capturing the breadth of this statement. This is a profound statement. It is an awesome promise and it's an encouragement for us. And I want to show you why. The word that's used is strengthened means a lot more than we would ordinarily think. You know, in our new, normal usage of that word, you can strengthen something and it can still fall, right? Right? In the normal use of that word, just if someone or something is strengthened, that strengthening might prove in the end to be inadequate. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. In fact, the word that Paul uses here that is translated as strengthen is the Greek word sterizo. S-T-E-R-I-Z-O. Sterizo. Now here's the deal about that word. That word means, it means to make something or someone firm and unyielding in attitude or belief, it means to make something or someone upright and absolutely immovable. It means to make them unyielding. It means to resolutely establish someone in a certain direction. It means to confirm and make stable and make secure. In fact, it's the very word, beloved, that was used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ when he resolutely and unchangeably and unshakingly set his face to go to Jerusalem to face the suffering and the cross that awaited him there. Jesus would not be deterred from his mission to redeem his people, would he? Would he? There was no turning back. And it's the same idea here. God is able to secure his people so that we do not fall away, period. God is able to ensure... That once we have been redeemed by the blood of His Holy Son, we can never be lost again. That is the heart of what Paul is getting at here. He's speaking about the eternal security that we have in Almighty God. He's saying that God is able to securely establish His people and set our feet on solid ground and make you, Christian, immovable and enduring in your faith. Amen. It's the picture, for instance... That were given in Psalm 40 when David says, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of a miry bog, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord Beloved, here's, the, here's what he's getting at. Here's what Paul's establishing. He's like, look, you're standing in the Lord. is not about you. It's not about how hard you can hold on to him. It's about the fact that he holds you. It's God who saved you by his grace. It's God who has lifted you out of the mire and the filth of your sin. It's God who has freed you from Satan's power. It's God who has brought you out from the dominion of sin and death. It's God who makes you strong. It's God who saves you completely. It's God who is able to make all grace abound to you. It is God who is your ever-present help in time of temptation. It's God who's able to answer your prayers. It's God who's able to keep you from falling away. And it's God who's able to raise you up from the grave. Praise God. It's God who's made you his own. And man, God plays for keeps. God plays for keeps. And praise God that it's so. That's why Paul could confidently say to the Philippians, you know, when he wrote to them and he said, I'm sure of this. I'm confident of this. I know this with certainty, he says, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. You can count on it. It's why Peter could speak of the elect exiles to whom he wrote his first epistle as those who by God's power, he says, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's exactly why Jesus, why the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 10 could declare, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. The Lord knows those who are his. And he displays his mighty power to ensure that they endure to the end. God alone has the power to establish true believers against all deception and all compromise and all falling away. And why? Here's why. Because of the mighty power of his gospel. Because of the mighty power of his gospel. Because of the mighty power of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the gospel personified. Look, I want you to see that with me. Look at what Paul says here when he talks about the mighty power of God's gospel. He says, in fact, just pick it up from the beginning of verse 25. He says this. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal god to bring about the obedience of faith. now here's this the guts of the whole thing right the guts of the that, that, that occupies the middle of this of this doxology and here's what paul's saying god is able to make you strong he's able to make you endure He's able to make you firm and unchanging and upright and immovable and unyielding and establish you stable and secure in him forever. But how does he do that? And he says, it's nothing less, he does it by nothing less than the mighty gospel of God that's centered in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, amen. Look what he does. This is glorious, beloved. Beloved. Look what he does here. He's saying the fullness of the gospel. You don't need anything else. The fullness of the gospel. What I have just given you, the truth that I have just written, the the very truth of Christ, who makes you to know the eternal Son of God. This, This very word that makes you to know the eternal Son of God. Listen to me. It is all you need to establish your soul securely forever. It's all you need. When Paul calls this here, my gospel, what does he mean by that? Well, I, there are a lot of things. There are several things at play. The first thing I would say is this, is that when Paul, praise God for this too. Can I just tell you what? I, I am so grateful for Paul's boldness here. When he says, when he calls this my gospel, he's doing so to distinguish the true gospel which he preached and which he had just described in this letter from the multitude of false gospels that were in the world. He had no problem saying my gospel about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it like that. He says it like that, secondly, because he had received this gospel by direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. Had he not? Had he not? He sure had. He said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. He said, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Amen. It's not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, the gospel's not, the good news is not the invention of any man. It is not the product of human wisdom. It is not the creation of religious scholars. It is not the property of mankind at all, which is why no man has the right to tamper with the almighty gospel of the living God. No man does. You have no right to massage the gospel into something you want it to be rather than what it is. Beloved, the gospel it does not originate with us it doesn't the good news of the gospel comes from outside of us it has to what could we produce that was not stained by sin not a thing not a thing in fact can i tell you what the gospel would be entirely unknown to us were it not for the revelation of god isn't that so this gospel was entrusted to paul to preach he was the herald of the good news and his, his job was not to invent the message. His job was to proclaim the message that had been given to him. I, I think about kind of like what we talked about on Wednesday night when we saw the imagery of a runner, right? When we are studying Isaiah, the imagery of the runner, the how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? We We see this imagery of a runner coming from the scene of a king's battle to declare the good news of peace and salvation, right? And what Paul proclaimed, what he ran and what he preached, it was God's decisive victory over sin and death and Satan and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And the captain of our salvation through the divine fight and, 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 the, and the great victory that he won for us on the cross through his resurrection from the dead. We're righteous not by our own works, but by the mighty work of our great Redeemer. But there's even more. You know why Paul called it my gospel? Here's why. Fourth reason, I guess. I don't know. Third, fourth, whatever it is. He uses this descriptor, my gospel, you know why? Because he'd personally experienced its power. That's why. Because he'd personally experienced its power. You know, for Paul, his life was the gospel. It was, it was personal for him because he knew. He knew how Christ had laid hold of him and how the gospel itself had delivered him from a dead heart, man. From a worthless religion how the gospel had delivered him from vain and fleshly pursuits of false piety to true life and eternal hope, to real forgiveness and and holiness, to, to righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here was a man that was held captive by the love of Christ and by the gospel of his grace, and so he could rightly call it my gospel. It's my gospel. It's the gospel that saved me, praise God. It's personal for him. And it was personal because the gospel is not just a bunch of theology. Beloved, the gospel is not just a message of, of theological truths. The gospel is Christ. The gospel is Christ. In fact, look at what he says here. He uses a connector here. In our English, it's translated as and. But he uses a connector here to basically say that my gospel is nothing less than the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Now we got to understand what he's saying here, okay? Because if you read that, <coughs> you might look at preaching and you might think that it's a verb, right—the the act of preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not. This is not a verb here. It's a noun. It's a noun. Does that make a difference? It does. It's the Greek word kerygma, k e r y g m a. It's the Greek word kerygma, which des- describes not only the act of preaching, right? But it also includes the content of what is being preached. So, get what Paul is saying here when he says, "My gospel." You know, the, the God is able to strengthen you by my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is this: He's saying that the gospel, really, what it is, my gospel, is nothing less than the exaltation and the proclamation of Christ Himself in the hearing of men. It's the proclaiming of somebody. Okay? It's the magnifying of somebody. That's the idea. And that's really important to understand. Listen, this letter's filled with theology, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, when you read systematic theologies, you know, you can't get very far. Maybe two or three pages. Every two or three pages, it feels like Romans is being mentioned, right? I mean, that's just the kind of book this is. It is absolutely stacked with theology. It really is. But while it's filled with theology, with rich theology, sweeping theology, beloved, theology was not, was not the heart of Paul's gospel. The heart of his gospel is a person. It's Jesus Christ himself. And throughout this letter, he's emphasized that fact again and again. That everything centers in and on Christ, right? Now, I'm saying this to you, and I mean this with all of my heart. Look, I'm saying this to y'all because I know that you are, you know, theologically a sound people. I understand you are doctrinally sound. I get the fact that you are well taught and that you you have well received what you've been taught. I get that. But here's the thing. The focus of our hearts, the the, the direction of our souls, while theology is great and I love it. If theology obscures the person of Christ, then theology has occupied a place in your heart that it ought not occupy. Are you hearing me? There are any number of people, and we've seen this to our own hurt, there are any number of people that can affirm True theological propositions. But when it comes to following the person Christ. Fail to their own eternal detriment. It's not enough to know theology. you got to know the Christ of the theology. And that everything is rooted in Him. It's Him to whom you must hold fast. It's He who holds fast to you. The doctrine of election doesn't save you. Christ does. The doctrine of justification doesn't save you. Christ does. The doctrine of sanctification or glorification or adoption doesn't save you. Christ does. Are you hearing me? And those doctrines only have meaning rooted in Christ. Think about it. I I just did a quick survey. When I was looking at this the other day, I just did a quick survey of the ways in which Paul centers everything he says in this, this, this great epistle on Christ. You know, he, his thanksgiving for the Roman Christians, verse, chapter 1, verse 8, is to God through Christ. It's, it's in according, according to his gospel that God will judge the secrets of men. Guess what? Through Christ, 2.16. It's the righteousness of God that's received through faith in Christ chapter 3, verse 22. We're justified by the redemption that is in Christ, chapter 3, verse 24. We have peace with God through Christ, chapter 5, verse 1. We rejoice in God through Christ, chapter 5, verse 11. We have the free gift of life in Christ, chapter 5, verse 15. We are dead to sin and alive to God. How? In Christ, chapter 6, verse 11. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Where? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Chapter 6, verse 23. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus, right? Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God. Where? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of who? Christ we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It's all in Christ. It's through Christ. It's by Christ. Because Christ is the center of it all. That's it. This gospel is Christ proclaimed. Not theology proclaimed. It's Christ proclaimed. When Paul said to the Corinthians, remember when he famously said to them, for I decided... To to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Remember we said that? Look, some people take that and they're like, Oh, see, Paul never talked about anything practical. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. When he said to him, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Listen, it doesn't mean that he never spoke about practical things. What we would call the more practical things about ethics and, and proper living. In fact, Paul did that all the time, didn't he? Who did it here in Romans chapter 12, right? From chapter 12 on. That's the kind of thing that he did. But here's the issue. Here's here's the reality, right? Everything Paul taught, he brought back to the person and the lordship of Christ. Evidenced by him crucified and risen from the dead, right? So that Christ Christ, would be the heart of everything. And this is so important. Look, we don't do what we do because it's the right thing. I mean, yeah, we should do it because it's the right thing, right? Right? But that's not why we do things. That's not the real heart of it. Oh, I do this because it's the right thing. No, it ought to be. I do this because the Lordship of Christ compels me. Because my King says so, and I want to please Him. Right? You with me? See, that makes such a huge difference, doesn't it? In sanctification and ethical living as a believer. When when Where it's really grounded, it is not that it's the right thing and it's the approved thing and people will look at me well if I do this, but rather, man, my greatest desire is I want to honor my Lord and King. I want you to think about something for a moment. You know, there are untold numbers of places in this country today where people are meeting in church buildings, right? Where people are meeting in church buildings. I'm saying it that way for a reason. And they have the same Bible as we do, and they sing, and they take offerings, and they offer prayers, and they have have messages, and yet they're not worshiping. They're not worshiping. Little is said of Christ. There's no encounter... With his glorious lordship. He is not impressed upon the hearts of the people. There's no encounter with his power to save sinners. And you know why? It's because Christ is not preached. That's why. It's not preaching Christ. To just mention his name every now and again. Or to use him. And you know say some aspect of his teaching. As you know, here's some helpful hints for a happy life. never seen Joel Osteen say that. You know, like, why? Somebody asked him a question. Why is it that you are popular among atheists? What he should have said is, because I don't preach the gospel. And that's what he should have said. He should have said, because I don't know God, and I don't know Christ his son, and I make sure nobody else knows him either. That's why atheists love me. You know what he said? He said <clears throat> they like me because the principles that I teach from the Lord Je- from no, he didn't call the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry. The principles that I teach that Christ taught are applicable to anybody's life and to give you a good life now. What an absolutely blind. What an absolutely blind guide leading the blind. Charles Spurgeon was right when he said, and I, man, he was absolutely right when he said this. If you want to like, knit something and stick it on your wall, here would be a good one for you. He said, the best sermons are the sermons which are most full of Christ. A sermon without Christ, it is an awful and a horrible thing. It is an empty well. It is an empty well. It is a cloud without rain. It is a twice-dead tree plucked by the roots It's an abominable thing to give men stones for bread and scorpions for eggs, and yet they do so who preach, not Jesus. A sermon without Christ? As well talk of a loaf of bread without any flour in it. How can it feed the soul? The sermon which does not lead to Christ, or of which Jesus Christ is not the top and the bottom, is a sort of a sermon that will make the devils in hell laugh but make the angels of God weep. Then he says this. I love it. This is quintessential Spurgeon. The preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. The preaching of Christ is the thunderbolt, the sound of which makes all hell shake. Amen. Beloved, we must preach Christ. And Paul rejoiced in the fact that his gospel was that. It was Christ. That's, he just preached Christ. And it's enough. It's enough for every soul. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preached, listen, it was once a mystery. That's what he's saying here. It was once a mystery. It was once previously hidden. But now that it's been revealed, we've got no right to hide it from the world. We've got no right to do that. Think about this with me. What does Paul mean when he says, look at it, where he says that the gospel of Christ is the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations. What does he mean by that? Well, first he's saying, look, you know what? Here's the thing about this gospel that I'm preaching to you. And I preach this gospel in which we rejoice, this gospel that establishes you, this gospel that saves you to the uttermost. Here's the thing about this gospel that's been designed by God. First thing about it is, it was once, it has been, here's the first thing, it has been hidden, has been hidden in the mind of God from all of eternity. That's the first thing. Remember the Pactum Salutis we talked about last Christmas? Remember that? When we talked about that eternal covenant among the Godhead, the covenant that was, that was struck before creation ever existed, that plan of salvation, that that said you know that plan of redemption that said in sovereign love that the the father chose for uh, for himself a people for salvation among all the sinners of the world and that he gave them to his son as their savior and redeemer and their mediator as their prophet and priest and king so that Christ might redeem them and that Christ would become a man and accomplish their redemption in his perfect life and atoning death and then that the Holy Spirit for his part would bring them all to Christ to receive all the benefits of salvation and Christ would eternally be the Lord of his church. That great gospel hidden in the mind of God from all of eternity, that gospel was a mystery, right? It was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Certainly it was. We saw it in, we see it foreshadowed in the, the sacrifice of an animal to clothe Adam and Eve after their fall, right? We see it in the first mention of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. We see it in Noah and the ark. We see it in God's covenant with Abraham to bless all nations. We see it, you know, in, in Abraham and Isaac and God's command to Abraham to go and sacrifice his son and then providing a ram, right? As the, as the sacrifice in his place. We see it in the life of Joseph, in the Exodus, in the Passover. We see it with Moses and his mention of that prophet that he said would come after him. <coughs> we see it in the sacrificial system. We see it, you know, on the Day of Atonement. We see it in the life of David. We read about it in the Psalms, right? Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him, right? We read about it in the prophets. Isaiah in his prophecy of the, of the suffering yet triumphant servant. Jeremiah in the promise of a new covenant. David, Daniel, I mean, in the rock that crushed every other kingdom and then became itself a mighty mountain. All of it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. But all of it's in types and shadows, right? Right? Even the prophets themselves did not fully understand everything that they wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You realize that? Remember you know what Peter says, right? In Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 11 and 12, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed. To them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The gospel was once hidden. It's not hidden anymore. The gospel was once in shadow and in type. It's not that way anymore. In Christ, the mystery of the gospel has been fully revealed so that we can understand it in full. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. With the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel is made plain. Robert Haldane puts it like this. He says, in the time of the Old Testament, the mystery of the Messiah was couched in figure and in prophecy. The Messiah, indeed, was in a large degree discovered by Moses and the prophets, but he was not made manifest. He was not made manifest. This was done when he himself appeared. The gospel has now been fully revealed. The great message of salvation for all peoples. Through the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the command of the eternal God, Paul says, it has gone forth into every nation. It's gone forth to all the peoples, to every tribe, nation, and tongue. By His sovereign will and blessing. Think about this, beloved. You have been born in this age where the gospel is plain and evident. To you it's been granted to live in this age of open gospel proclamation of the unique glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And of his work to redeem sinners. Have you ever thought how, how favored you are by God to live in this age? You ever thought about that? I know lots of times what's, what consumes us is complaint. This world stinks. It's horrible. It's blah, 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 right? And I'll join in with you because this sin is, or this world is horrifically corrupt in sin, correct? It is. But you know what's true? We live in an age where the gospel is readily available, readily preached, and can be readily understood. Imagine if you were born in the Old Testament. Imagine if you were a Gentile in the Old Testament who, by and large, were overlooked by God for salvation. What about that? Hmm? you think about that? What if you were born prior to the Reformation when the Catholic Church obscured entirely the gospel of Jesus Christ? People couldn't read. You didn't have a Bible. You had no clue. What about that? What about that, right? Praise God. You live in the age... Where the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. Now, granted, it's being obscured by a lot of garbage. That's no lie. And granted, the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is is not as widespread in our nation as it once has been. That's true. But the gospel's still here, isn't it? Christ is still being preached, isn't he? And we ought to be grateful for that. We ought to be thankful for that. We've got. The truth of the gospel. It's gone into all the world. And for what purpose? Well, it's to bring about the obedience of faith, Paul says. And you know, we're familiar with that, right? With that phrase. We've heard it once already. Anybody remember where? Yes, yeah, in chapter one and verse five. Right back at the very beginning, in the introduction. Chapter one and verse five, where Paul talks about the fact that he had received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among the nations. He was to bring about the obedience of faith. What does that mean? Do you remember? I'm just going to refresh your memory quickly because it's key. This is how the gospel works to keep you secure. Right? It's preached in order to bring about the obedience of faith. So what is that? Well, it can mean two things, that phrase. It can mean the obedience that is faith itself. Or it can mean the obedience that comes from faith in Christ. That, that is the result of faith in Christ. It can mean either of those two things. Guess what? Paul does that deliberately, or should I say the Holy Spirit in Paul does that deliberately. Why? Because the two are true together. They're both. It means both of these things together. Let me show you what I mean. The real essence of sin, everybody, we try to come up with a, a variety of different things as to what is the real essence. Here's the real essence of sin. It's unbelief. It's failing to believe God. It's unwillingness to believe God. That's what, that's the essence of sin. It's a refusal to receive the word of God and to believe the words of God and then to just do as you please. That's the heart of it. It's unbelief. So here in the gospel, God gives his testimony concerning his son, right? And he calls upon every sinner to believe it. He calls upon every sinner to believe the testimony that he has given of his Son. Okay, And if you fail to do so, you are being disobedient to the command of God, and you are making God a liar, and you are rejecting the word of the eternal holy God, and that is damning sin. In other words, I mentioned this to you at the beginning. I'll mention it to you again. The gospel is not just an invitation. Would you like to follow Jesus? It's not. In fact, Jesus didn't begin the proclamation of the gospel in that way at all. When Jesus began the proclamation of the gospel, he said, repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, here's the point. Believing the gospel, as we know, is not an inconsequential thing. But because the gospel is not merely an invitation to believe the truth, and it's not merely a free offer of salvation, the gospel is a divine command. Believe. It's a command. It's an imperative. And it's the proclamation of the only way of salvation. The gospel demands our repentance and our faith. It demands our obedience. In other words, here's the deal. Saving faith is a decisive step of obedience to the command of the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ. The first act, the initial act of obedience by somebody who's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, by someone who has been made spiritually alive by God's grace, by somebody who has had had the, the, the veil removed from their eyes and had their ears unstopped and has beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The initial act of obedience is to turn away from that old life of sin and to entrust your life to Christ and to submit to Him as Lord and Savior, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the first part of it. And that's what gets us out of death into life, right? Here's what secures us. It's the power of that gospel to bring forth obedience that comes from faith. That brings forth obedience that comes from faith faith is the fundamental act of obedience to the gospel of christ But believing god's testimony about christ means a continual, continual surrendering of ourselves And a continuing committal of ourselves and a repenting and a believing and a turning from sin To a life of obedience to christ as lord, right? And we have been given the power of the holy spirit who dwells in us to do just that Listen, to me, I want you to, I want you to hear this when I hear me when I say this The holy spirit is not a weak little brother Are you hearing me? The Holy Spirit is not a weak little brother. And sometimes, to our own detriment, we treat him like he is. There is no sin with which you can be tempted. That the power of the Holy Spirit is not greater to deliver you from. And there's one amen. We have grown too accustomed to giving ourselves and out for our sin. Or it just overcame me. It's just too hard. It's just so difficult. It's just a pattern. All these other things. Let me tell you something. Is the Holy Spirit God or isn't He? Is He God or isn't He? If He has the power to seal you unto salvation, if He has the power to indwell you, if he has the power to facilitate your adoption as the child of the living God, does he not have the power to enable you to walk in a consistent manner of holiness? Of course he does. And he's the gift of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is wrapped up. Look, the reason Paul praises God like he does is because the gospel accomplishes everything necessary for the eternal salvation Of God's people in every aspect with nothing left undone. That's the point. God is able by his gospel to strengthen and establish true believers against all deception and all compromise and all falling away. He's able to make us firm and unchanging and upright and immovable. He's able to make us increasingly holy and obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's able to keep us repenting and believing and turning from a life of sin. He's able to keep us resolutely established and stable and secure in the Lord because that is the exact design of God's gospel. So Paul exalts, man. And all that God has done, and so should we, he gives glory to God forevermore. In fact, look at this last verse with me. Rather, this is what I want to do. Just look at the main phrase. Let's look at the main phrase together. So starting in verse 25, and then we'll jump down to verse 27, right? Look at it with me. He says, now, to him who is able to strengthen you. Remember what that means. To him who is able to strengthen you, establish you, make you rock solid. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. It's no surprise, really, that Paul finishes his letter with that. It's what the entirety of this letter has been about, right? The glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, the only one that can fully display the glory and the wisdom of God. Listen, only the wisdom of God could take rebel sinners, right, and make them children of the Most High. Only the wisdom of God could devise a plan, think about this, in which wretched and polluted souls can be reconciled to the Holy God delivered from eternal death and made an heir of heaven. Only the wisdom of God could devise a plan in which sin is atoned for and forgiveness is granted to the undeserving, but the justice of God is upheld. Only only the wisdom of God could make a dead soul live and grant him the gift of the Holy Spirit. Only the wisdom of God could change a rebel into a worshiper. Only the wisdom of God can change a hater of God into a lover of Christ and a glad servant of his king. Only the wisdom of God could make us firm and unchanging and upright and immovable. Only the wisdom of God and that alone through Jesus Christ our Lord. Only them, Right? When Paul says here, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, he's saying, listen, man, don't miss this. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can truly know God. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ that we can know God in in his glory in the fullest sense. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can approach God and worship him. Without Christ, we could not approach God and live. The Lord Jesus Christ is the very heart of the gospel. In fact, I I love what J.C. Ryle rightly says. He says, no one can be saved from sin. It's guilt, it's power, it's consequences, except by Jesus Christ. No one can have peace with God the Father, obtain pardon in this world, and escape the wrath to come in the next, except through the atonement and the mediation of Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, God's rich provision of salvation for sinners is treasured up by Christ alone. God's abundant mercies come down from heaven to earth. Christ's blood alone can cleanse us. Christ's righteousness alone can clothe us. Christ's merit alone can give us a title to heaven. Jews and Gentiles, learned and unlearned, kings and poor men, all alike, must either be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ or lost forever. There's no other person commissioned, no other person sealed and appointed by God the Father to be the Savior of sinners except Christ. The keys of life and death are committed into His hand, and all who would be saved must go to Him. Man's case appears to be a hopeless one without a Savior, and a mighty Savior too. There must be a mediator, an atonement, an advocate to make such poor sinful beings acceptable with God, and I find this nowhere except in Jesus Christ. Because of everything Christ has done, we can ascribe glory to God, beloved. We can approach God in worship. We can magnify and extol and praise Him, and He receives our praise and the ascription of glory to His name with gladness. All because of what Christ has done. All the glory that will redound to God throughout eternity proceeds through the Lord Jesus Christ, and God designed it that way. Did he really? Yeah, He did. Do you remember these familiar words from Philippians chapter 2? Christ, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by, becoming, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Of God the Father. Yes, indeed. And so there's only one thing left for us to say. Amen, right? Amen. In the light of such glorious truth, all we can say is, this is true. So be it. May it be. May God confirm and bring to pass everything that he has planned. Paul gets to the end, and there's nothing left to say, is there, beloved? Except, amen, right on, yes. God be the glory. By his eternal, who by his eternal gospel now revealed and made known in the whole world through the scriptures, the mystery revealed by the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel by which we are saved to glorify God and enjoy him him forever. To him be glory now and forevermore. Right? It is perfect. We close this book with, The soli deo gloria, isn't it? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as your people, we can rightly say to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can say it, Lord God, because by your perfect gospel, you have redeemed us. And Lord God, you are holding us fast, holding us firm, anchoring us To you, Lord God, you have confirmed that we belong to you. Not just now, but for eternity. And so we can rejoice that your gospel, this glorious gospel that was once a mystery, this incredible gospel of the redemption of sinful man by the perfect God-man, Lord, this gospel that, you know, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit throughout this entire letter. Father, this gospel is perfect. Perfect in power. Perfect in might. Perfect in its completion. Perfect in all that it does. Because, Lord God, it's not just a a bunch of theology. Your gospel is Christ himself. And we thank you for our Savior, and for our King. Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts this day to rejoice with gladness and thanksgiving in all that we have, all that we have in and through the Lord Jesus, and that we would extol you and acknowledge you as the only God, the only true God, and the only wise God ever. We bless you and we praise you. Give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen.